Welcome to the Special Forces in World War II podcast, transmitting on this frequency. This broadcast is your dedicated channel for comprehensive intelligence regarding World War II Special Forces operations. Our transmissions encompass in-depth analysis of their strategic maneuvers, cutting-edge equipment, illustrious biographies, and an array of pertinent subjects. The orchestration of these transmissions is executed by the expert team of the Special Forces in World War II website, a squad deeply immersed in the historical theater. For further insights, visual aids, and captured moments frozen in time, navigate to our virtual headquarters at worldwar2-soft.com. Your immersion into the front lines of knowledge awaits. Over and out. Welcome back to the Special Forces in World War II podcast. Today, we continue with the gripping story of Operation Chariot in the second part of our series, Operation Chariot, the greatest raid of all. But before we delve into the execution of this daring mission, let's quickly recap what we uncovered in part one about the preparations for this remarkable operation. In our first episode, we took a deep dive into the early stages of Operation Chariot. We explored how this audacious plan was conceived as a strategic move to target the heavily fortified docks of Saint-Nazaire, a crucial base for the German battleship Tirpitz, which posed a significant threat to Allied naval forces. We discussed the extensive planning and training that went into this operation, highlighting the challenges faced by the Allied command in assembling a force capable of such a high-risk mission. Our journey took us into the war rooms where strategies were debated and the selection of the brave men of the British commandos and the Royal Navy who would carry out the raid. We also shed light on the innovative tactics devised by the planners, including the modification of the HMS Campbelltown, which was central to the plan. The episode concluded as the stage was set for the raid, with the forces ready to embark on what was to be one of the most daring assaults of the Second World War. And now, in part two, we turn to the execution of Operation Chariot. We'll walk through the unfolding of events on that fateful day of March 28, 1942, detailing the heroic actions, unexpected turns, and the indomitable spirit of those involved in the greatest raid of all. So stay with us as we journey back to 1942, to the heart of the action. As we embark on this next chapter, we'll not only revisit the strategies and the bravery, but also the human stories and the sheer determination that turned Operation Chariot into a legendary episode of World War II. This is the Special Forces in World War II podcast. Let's uncover the thrilling events of Operation Chariot, the greatest raid of all. March 26, 1942. 9.30. The order, Preparative Chariot from the Commander-in-Chief, Plymouth, Admiral Forbes, is given. On the verge of their departure, the commando force learns that their destination is Saint-Nazaire. 12.30. The assault force receives the executive order, 
carry-out chariot from Admiral Forbes's headquarters signifies the official start of the raid. Colonel Newman, with the remainder of the headquarters staff, embarks in the HMS Atherstone. 14 o'clock. The small boats sail from Falmouth, followed by the three destroyers HMS Campbelltown, HMS Tyndale, and HMS Atherstone. Notably, each launch carries two large petrol drums on deck, vital for refueling on the return journey. While the presence of these fuel tanks is initially met with concern due to the risk of them igniting in an attack, the realization of their necessity for the mission's success leads to a shift in perception, and they are regarded with a sense of endearment. Once the convoy is complete, they form up into three columns and sail southwest towards the first waypoint at 13 knots. Motor gunboat 314 is towed by the HMS Atherstone, while motor torpedo boat 74 is towed by the HMS Campbelltown. These craft do not have the range to reach Saint-Nazaire unaided. The convoy is accompanied by a single fighter patrolling overhead. Once clear of land, the ships adopt the disguise of an anti-submarine sweep. The weather during the afternoon is conducive to the operation, with an east-northeast wind at force 4 on the Beaufort scale, which indicates a moderate breeze and a considerable amount of haze, conditions are favourable for the force to maintain a degree of concealment as they move. Haze can be advantageous in naval operations as it can help to obscure a fleet from long-range observation. 1911. The convoy reaches the first waypoint and starts heading slightly west of south. With night falling, the fighter escort heads home. Rider orders a formation change to night cruising order. Convoy speed is 14 knots, 23 o'clock. The second waypoint is reached. The new course is now beginning to take the ships directly into enemy waters and routes. They are also within range of German airfields in northern Brittany. March 27th, 1942. 2.14. Lieutenant Platt, Royal Navy Reserve, in motor launch 447, mistakenly reports a U-boat sighting. 2.30. The weather situation changes as the haze clears. The break of dawn brings with it extreme visibility, which will have been a double-edged sword. On one hand, Better visibility will aid in navigation and identification of targets or hazards. On the other hand, it will also make the force more visible to the enemy, potentially increasing the risk of detection as they approach their objective. This shift in conditions will have required adjustments in the operation's execution, with a heightened need for caution as they will have been more exposed to German reconnaissance and defensive measures. The clear visibility at dawn will have underscored the importance of timing and stealth in the final approach to the target at Saint-Nazaire. 6.50 The three destroyers hoist German ensigns, while in the coastal forces ships, the white ensigns are hauled down and stowed. 7 o'clock The convoy reaches waypoint 3 and turns to port, onto course 112 degrees. Speed is reduced to just eight knots. The anti-submarine sweep formation is adopted once more in case the ships might be under observation. 720. 
HMS Tyndale reports it seeing a submarine and proceeds towards it at high speed. At a distance of about eight kilometers, the submarine signals a recognition code that is answered by the HMS Tyndale with five long flashes, seemingly satisfying the submarine, which continues on the surface. 7.45 The HMS Tyndale raises the white ensign and fires upon the submarine from approximately four, five kilometers away. The submarine takes an evasive action and submerges. 7.58 a depth charge attack from the HMS Tyndale forces the submarine to resurface where it comes under heavy fire and takes on a significant list to port before disappearing beneath the waves again. After which, the HMS Atherstone joins the HMS Tyndale in the pursuit of the submarine. 9.20 Both destroyers return to their original course to the southwest to rejoin their fleet, taking an indirect route. They assume the submarine might have been destroyed, although there remains a chance that it can resurface and transmit a report to the enemy. Commander Ryder believes that since the submarine has not observed the motor launches, it will only report sighting two destroyers. Contrary to these assumptions, the submarine, identified as U-593 on a return patrol, has actually observed some of the motor launches before the attack and is not destroyed. 11 o'clock. The convoy resumes its southeasterly course. 12 o'clock. Close to waypoint 4, two French trawlers are sighted. Both trawlers, including the Nungesser et Collie F-267, are sunk after both crews are taken on board HAMS Tyndale. 12.40. The command-in-chief Plymouth radios that five German torpedo boats, which are previously reported at Saint-Nazaire, are instead spotted at Nantes two days earlier on March 25, 1942. Unbeknownst to the British, the German Group Command had actually received a report from U-593 three hours earlier. However, this information inadvertently benefited the British. The Germans assumed the British force was returning from a mine-laying mission and directed their torpedo boats to sweep the area off Saint-Nazaire during the night. As a result, these German vessels were already out at sea and away from the critical zone when Commander Ryder's force made their approach to the Loire for the raid. 1347. Captain Lieutenant Gerd Kelbling, the commander of U-Boot 593 surfaces again. He radios a sighting report, sighting three destroyers and ten motor torpedo boats at coordinates 46 degree 52 N. 5 degree 48 W, heading west, based on the intentional diversion of the two destroyers after they forced U-593 to dive. 14.20 Oberbefehl's Harbour West receives the message from U-Boot 593. Due to the reported westward direction, the Germans surmised that the British force is either retreating after a mine-laying operation or relocating motor torpedo boats to Gibraltar, thus dismissing the potential threat of an assault on a French coastal port. Oberbefehl's Harbour West directs five torpedo boats to sweep the area off Saint-Nazaire during the night. 1718. The Command-in-Chief Plymouth sends another message the dirt that five German torpedo boats have returned to the vicinity of Saint-Nazaire. 
Although these torpedo boats represented a formidable force, the British believe their presence is still undetected by the enemy since there has been no reports from the U-boat that has been engaged earlier, nor have there been any aerial sightings of the British force. Thus, it is deemed that the enemy is unaware of the British force, and there is no cause to alter the original mission plan. 19 o'clock. The convoy receives another message from the Commander-in-Chief Plymouth to inform them that two more Hunt-class destroyers, HMS Cleveland and HMS Brocklesby, are sent at full speed to join the convoy. 20 o'clock. The convoy reaches the fifth waypoint and stops. Ryder and Newman transfer from HMS Atherstone to motor gunboat 314, and the force adopts its attack formation of port and starboard columns of motor launches with the HMS Campbelltown in between. A northeasterly course is now adopted, heading for the mouth of the River Loire at 15 knots. 2030. Motor launch 341 suffers engine trouble. The ship transfers its troops to motor launch 446. Meanwhile, the assault force proceeds as planned. After receiving the troops, motor launch 446 hurries to catch up with the assault force, while motor launch 341 follows at its best speed, 11 knots at that time, but loses contact and returns to England alone. On the way back, it sights one Fokker Wolf about 160 kilometers west of Ushant, but is not attacked. 22 o'clock. The flotilla spots the HMS Sturgeon's light directly in front of them. 22.15. They sail close enough to HMS Sturgeon to communicate by shouting. Waypoint Z is reached, and their course is confirmed by the partially submerged HMS Sturgeon acting as a navigation beacon. After passing HMS Sturgeon, a mist descends, reducing visibility to approximately three kilometers. Around that same time, motor launch 446 catches up with the assault force and takes up its place in the convoy. With only 65 kilometers to go, the destroyers HMS Tyndale and HMS Atherstone detach from the assault force to patrol a line where they might best hope to rendezvous with surviving launches coming out of the estuary after the raid. HMS Sturgeon II departs and resumes her interrupted patrol off the coast of Brest, France. 2330. Five Royal Air Force bomber squadrons, comprising 35 Whitleys and 27 Wellingtons, start their bombing runs over Saint-Nazaire to draw the attention from the closing convoy. March 28, 1942. 025. The assault force passes the wreck of the troopship HMS Lancastria, sunk in 1940. They are on time and on course, with only 18 kilometers to go to the Normandy dock. 045 HMS Campbelltown grounds twice on the Le Chatelier Shoal. Meanwhile, the northern shore becomes faintly visible from near Le Chatelier Shoal, about 12 kilometers from Saint-Nazaire. HMS Campbelltown, serving as the guide, is directed on course, allowing motor gunboat 314 the freedom to navigate for depth soundings and to take radio direction finding RDF ranges from the shore. Overhead, the five Royal Air Force bomber squadrons are heard making for home. 
One o'clock, even though the bombers have left, the batteries remain on alert. A patrol vessel sights the assault force, but has no radio on board. The commander of the 809 Marine Flakabteilung also sights the force. His report is disbelieved. 1.15. The assault force is reported again, this time by a lookout at St. Mark. Inquiries confirm these are not the German destroyers sent to sea earlier in response to the U-593 commander's report. 1.20. The first ships are passing Les Morais Light Tower, a mere 3.5 kilometers from the target. The commander of 22. Marine Flak Regiment, Kapitänse C. Karl Konrad Mecker, gives the beware landing signal and emergency orders come into effect to repel an assault. 123. The assault force is challenged by signal from within the port and from Battery Bernke West. One searchlight from the Numador 3 Heavy Coastal Battery illuminates the Charpentier Channel, and then all searchlights along the riverbanks are activated, fully exposing the British force. Commander Ryder, on board motor gunboat 314, replies with a coded response obtained from a German trawler boarded during the Vagsoy raid in 1941. Some searchlights are turned off following this deception, but then Ryder is challenged by the south entrance station. He responds with a message similar to the previous one. A few bursts are fired from a shore battery and both HMS Campbelltown and motor gunboat 314 reply, ship being fired upon by friendly forces, which successfully halts the firing. 128. The Germans open fire. Under heavy fire, the assault force rushes the last 1.6 kilometers in the Loire estuary to the dock. Most of the motor launches are destroyed in the engagement. HMS Campbelltown clears the end of the old mole and cuts through anti-torpedo netting across the entrance. With only 400 meters remaining to the target, Lieutenant Commander Beatty navigates HMS Campbelltown at full speed towards the lock gate. Despite sustaining hits from enemy fire, including shells and bullets, the ship's vital components remain intact. Both the coxswain and his relief are wounded amid the assault. Subsequently, Lieutenant Tibbetts takes control of the wheel. 134. Just four minutes later than planned, HMS Campbelltown rams the dock gates. The force of the impact drives the ship ten meters onto the gates. The ship's forecastle is ablaze and its Ehrlichan guns fire aggressively in defense as it is targeted by German anti-aircraft guns. The attack on Campbelltown is somewhat alleviated by motor launch 160. The motor launch manages to direct precise fire with her three-pounder gun at the light anti-aircraft positions located to the starboard side of HMS Campbelltown, successfully neutralizing them. After striking the dock gates, the crew of HMS Campbelltown opens the valves to scuttle the ship, settling the stern on the seabed. The crew then transfers on board ML-177. Immediately after the impact, the commandos of Group 3 on board HMS Campbelltown disembark. Two assault parties, five demolition teams with their protectors, and a mortar group leave the ship. The two assault parties are the first to disembark from HMS Campbelltown. 
Assault Party 3C, led by Lieutenant John Morgan Roderick, is tasked with the assault on the flak positions at the southeast corner of the Normandy dock, followed by the destruction of fuel storage units and preventing the enemy from approaching the landing area from the northeast. Assault Party 3D, commanded by Captain Donald William Roy, is to assault the flak positions on the roof of the pumping station and form a bridgehead at Bridge G to cover the withdrawal. They also have to protect the assault force from any attacks from vessels in the Bassin de Saint-Nazaire. Roy and his 13-man assault team succeed in destroying the guns on the roof of the pumping station. They swiftly move to Bridge G and form a bridgehead, enabling the demolition parties to exit the area. All demolition efforts are under the command of Demolition Headquarters, led by Captain Robert Kerr Montgomery. Copeland disembarks with his own team of four. After sending one wounded man for evacuation, he moves towards the mole with Corporal Cheatham, Lance Corporal Jock Fife, the radio operator, and his Batman, Private Jerry Hannon. Since Captain Roy is still heavily engaged with the enemy at that moment, Copland chooses to circle northwards and approach headquarters along the Quai de Frégate. As the party heads towards Brett's caisson, they learn from Hopwood that all is going well at the pumping station. Protection Party 3A, led by Lieutenant Bill Hoppy Howell Gaston, Lloyd Hopwood, must protect the demolition teams working at the southern end of the dock. Demolition Party 3A1, under the command of Lieutenant Robert J.G. Burtinshaw, was to destroy the outer caisson if HMS Campbelltown failed. Since HMS Campbelltown completed its mission successfully, the party joins Lieutenant Gerard Brett's demolition party 3B1 to destroy the inner caisson. Demolition party 3A2, led by Lieutenant Christopher John Smalley, has to demolish the southern winding house. Smalley and his team manage to enter through a window after finding the door locked. They place their charges and attempt to detonate them. When the initial attempt fails, they boldly re-enter, reset the detonators, and successfully detonate the explosives on the second try. Demolition Party 3A3, commanded by Lieutenant Stuart Whitemore Chant, has the objective of destroying the pumps and motors within the pumping station. Chance party of four Lance sergeants reaches the pump house and encounters their protection squad leader, Lieutenant Hopwood. Chant is wounded upon arrival. The lock of the pump house is blown with an explosive device. Escorted by Hopwood and Captain Robert Montgomery, Chant's team enters the pump house. Their primary targets are the four pairs of motors and pumps, which they believe could not be replaced within a year. After placing approximately 75 kilograms of explosives, Chant sends his team back up. He waits for the clear signal, pulls the igniters, and rushes out just before the pump house explodes. After assessing the damage, they conclude that their mission is accomplished and report back to Captain Montgomery. Protection Party 3B, led by Lieutenant M.C. Bung Dennison, is tasked with providing cover for the demolition parties in the inner caisson area. After disembarking from HMS Campbelltown, they move under fierce and accurate fire from a trench halfway along the dockside. 
Dennison diverts the Germans' fire while two of his men throw hand grenades, eliminating the enemy. Dennison then advances past the northern caisson and winding shed, positioning his party to protect the demolition team's demolition party 3B1, commanded by Lieutenant Gerard Brett, has to advance along the west side of the dock and destroy the inner caisson. After leaving HMS Campbelltown, the party is joined by demolition party 3A, one of Lieutenant Burtonshaw. Along with the protection squad and the other three B teams, they rush the 300 meters, led by Lieutenant Dennison and his men. Upon reaching the area, Brett and Burtonshaw move towards the roadway across the lock gate. At the lock, the two teams come under small arms fire from several groups of concealed enemy troops. Adding to their difficulties, the construction of the caisson differs from that at Southampton. The teams are to place two types of charges on the dock gates. One set consists of 12 10-kilogram underwater charges to be placed against the caisson walls on the Penhoet Basin side of the gates, and the other set is made up of circular charges to be laid inside the hollow walls of the caisson itself. However, when the team tries to open an inspection door in the centre of the road to access the chamber, they encounter difficulty because the top of the caisson has been decked over with timber and sealed with tarmac. Brett is hit shortly after arriving, as are many others in the two parties. Enemy fire continues to sweep across the exposed roadway, picking off the commandos one by one. The underwater charges are lowered over the side and wired into a cortex ring, ready for ignition. On the roadway, attempting to get into the caisson proves to be an impossible task. Burtonshaw tries to blow open the trapdoor, but fails. The sound of the explosion brings even fiercer retaliatory fire from the enemy. Ships in the Penhoet Basin and the machine guns on the two tankers below them in the dry dock join in the firefight. As casualties mount, with men falling on all sides, including Burtonshaw, Sergeant Carr takes control. It becomes obvious that no charges can be laid inside the caisson, so he decides to abandon that part of the demolition plan and to fire the underwater explosives. Carr detonates the charges, which hang from the dock gates in the water, producing a low and comforting boom that sends great pillars of water skyward. He returns to the roadway over the caisson and hears water cascading into the hollow structure. The dock gate is not destroyed, but is damaged enough that it will take time and effort to repair. Brett orders the men to retreat to the old mole, leaving the bodies of their fallen comrades behind. Demolition Party 3B2, led by Lieutenant Corin William Brooke Purden, also has to advance along the west side of the dock and demolish the northern winding house. After leaving HMS Campbelltown, the party, together with the protection squad and the other three B teams, moves along the 300 metres along the west side of the dock. Reaching the area, Lieutenant Purden and his team head for the winding shed. They place their charges on the motors and giant wheels, wiring them up and ready to be detonated, but wait for Brett and Burtonshaw to blow the case on first. Purden sends Sergeant Chung across to inform the other two officers that he is ready, but Chong encounters small arms fire and is wounded.
After hearing the inner caisson being blown, Purden detonates his charges, destroying the winding shed. This is heard by the commandos on their way back to the bridge held by Roy. This completes the task set for Group 3, and the men prepare to retreat towards the old mole. While the men of Group 3 were working on completing their objectives, the motor launches started unloading their commandos. Motor Launch 447 is at the head of the port column with onboard Assault Group 1F under command of Captain Burney and 14 commandos. The primary task of this assault party is to capture and clear the mole and establish a bridgehead at its landward end. From here, they could then protect the remaining five motor launches during landing and re-embarkation. As a secondary task, they would clear the building containing gun position 62 so that it could be used as medical post by the commando medical detachment, which would land later. During the way in the motor launch is damaged by grenades and heavy close-range fire while attempting to land at the old mole. The Ehrlichons are knocked out with their crews and many of the commandos killed. The ML misses the landing place and is forced to reverse out and try again. From the stone walls towering above them came a storm of small arms fire and grenades. While manoeuvring the ship back towards its goal, a large-caliber shell hits the vessel, penetrating to the engine room. The craft bursts into flames and begins to drift away from the stone pier. The order is given to abandon ship. Many of the men aboard wash away and drown or die in the river. Only a few men make it to the shore. Just before the ship goes down, ML-160 comes alongside to take on the survivors. The ship sinks shortly afterwards. Motor launch 457 carries the demolition party's 1C consisting of the demolition expert, Captain Pritchard, and his four-man control party, Lieutenant Walton, and his demolition squad, and Lieutenant Watson, and his protection group. The ship is able to put his craft right onto the landing steps of the Old Mole and land their commandos. While approaching the Old Mole, the commando officers see a group of Germans running along the stone wall with their hands up and think that these are the troops manning the pillboxes surrendering. Thinking the garrison on the Old Mole is eliminated, they quickly get off the small craft and move to complete their tasks. Motor launch 457 moves away and waits for the evacuation. The Germans lock into the ships, and within minutes it is drifting and on fire. Motor launch 262 does not hesitate to go to her assistance and moves alongside the burning vessel. Several German searchlights lock onto the stationary motor launches, and both ships receive severe hits from enemy guns destroying the small ship. Motor Launch 307 is carrying Captain Bradley's demolition party, tasked with the destruction of the center lock gate in the south entrance. It also carries Captain David Patton, one of the commando doctors ordered to man the medical post at position 82. Edward Gilling, reporter with the Exchange Telegraph, would also land with the troops. While closing in on Old Mole, they hear a warning cry from Motor Launch 447 to not go in since it was impossible to land. The ship is already too close to stop, 
and misjudges the landing steps. Above them, the German defenders on the mole start dropping grenades onto the deck and firing light machine guns. The ship backs off and makes another attempt, but strikes an underwater obstacle and grounds. German fire continues to hit the boat, and due to increasing commando casualties that they are unable to complete their objectives with the men left. The landing is abandoned. The motor launch withdraws to the other side of the river. Here, the ship attacks the German guns and searchlights that are interfering with the raid before returning to Great Britain. Motor launch 443 carries a 15-man team under command of Lieutenant Wilson and Lieutenant Bonvin and 2nd Lieutenant Bassett Wilson. The ship also carries a protection party led by Lieutenant Joe Houghton for Captain Bill Bradley's demolition party on ML-307. Their objective is destroying Group Z. This group of buildings include the Boiler House, Impounding Station and Hydraulic Power Station. After completing their objectives, the group would withdraw to the protection of Bernie's bridgehead. In the confusion around the old mole and blinded by searchlights, she sails too far north. While returning, she finds burning motor launches blocking her route to the mole. The strength of enemy fire forces the ship to withdraw. When it is not able to counter the German fire, it successfully makes her way back to open sea. Motor Launch 306 carries the nine-man demolition party under command of Lieutenant Ronnie Swain and their five-man protection party Lieutenant John Vanderwerve. Their objectives are the destruction of the lock gates and Bridge B at the southern end of the new entrance. After completing their objectives, they too would retreat to the protection of Bernie's bridgehead. The ship suffers the same as most of the motor launches that try to land their commandos at the Old Mole. The ship overshoots the landing place at Old Mole. It turns around and attempts to land again, but the chaos on the river and the strength of enemy fire makes the ship to withdraw. The ship retires to the open sea, where she encounters and engages the German torpedo boat destroyer Jaguar. The ship is forced to capitulate, her crew and commando parties are taken prisoner, and the motor launch is captured. It later enters German service. Motor launch 446 is promoted from a spare craft to a commando-carrying vessel when motor launch 341 is forced to return to England due to motor problems. She carries Assault Party 1E under command of the Group 1 commander, Captain Bertie Hodgson and Lieutenant Ultrad. Their objective is to pass through Bernie's bridgehead and move south to capture and secure the two gun positions at the long east jetty of the Avant port. These guns are able to fire into the flanks of any vessels that comes towards the old mole. With these objectives secure, the party was then tasked with patrolling the area of the old town of Saint-Nazaire. The ship would also land Captain Mike Barling and two medical orderlies. This medical party would prepare a medical post to position 62, which would have been cleared by assault party 1F earlier. During their way in the ship, overshoots the old mole. In the meantime, 
Both of its Ehrlichons and their crews are destroyed, Captain Bertie Hodgson of the assault group on board is killed, and Lieutenant Otrid and two of his sergeants are wounded. In view of these heavy losses, the decision is made that further landing attempts are useless and the ship withdraws. The ship makes it to rendezvous area and is scuttled after having evacuated her crew and commandos onto HMS Atherstone. With only commandos landing from motor launch 457, only 20 of the intended 70 men made it to shore at the Old Mole. From motor launch 457, Lieutenant Watson and his protection party are the first to land from the vessel. Thinking that Bernie's team from motor launch 447 has landed and captured the old mole, he immediately moves from the old mole with the demolition parties of Walton and Pritchard in the rear. Captain Pritchard's role was demolition control. Since he had small demolition teams trained for the specific objectives, he is present to ensure a smooth operation with no specific targets of his own. Lieutenant Walton's demolition team is tasked with the destruction of the lifting bridge to help isolate the old town from the remainder of Saint-Nazaire and prevent any German counterattack from that side. Lieutenant Watson and his four men serve as their close protection team. Watson and Walton become separated when they approach Place de la Vielleville, Old Town Place. German small arms fire crisscross the area and keeps all movement to a minimum. Watson and his men try to move around the western side, but run into immediate trouble and are forced to take cover. Walton attempts to get to make for the lifting bridge, but is hit by German fire and goes down. His and Watson's team remains in cover, but even there several men are hit among them. Lieutenant Watson himself was injured. They are surrounded from all sides. Watson had tries again to get to the bridge, but keeps running into German fire while being further separated from the other commandos. He decides to make for Newman's headquarters to report on the situation at the Old Mole. Captain Pritchard and his four-man team take another route to the bridge. They find it deserted and find cover crouched behind to the left of the bridge. While waiting for Walton's party to arrive, Pritchard spots the French tugs champion and Pornick laying a few meters away in the submarine basin. He decides to attack them. With Corporal McLagan to help, he dashes fifty meters to the place where the ships are tied. They climb on board the first vessel and lower a charge between it and the ship alongside, pull the igniter, and dash back to the shelter of the hut. Pritchard then decides to take McLagan with him to check on the progress of the demolition teams. He orders the remaining corporals to do what they could to the lifting bridge and sets off south at the same moment that the charges explode. The two men move down the long lock that links the south entrance to the submarine basin, expecting to come across the three demolition teams going about their work, but there was no sign of the teams of Captain Bradley, Motor Launch 307, Lieutenants Wilson, Motor Launch 443, or Swain Motor Launch 306. After checking the power station, it becomes clear to him that no other teams have landed. Pritchard decides to return to the lifting bridge, but runs into a lone German. Pritchard is stabbed by a bayonet that very moment. McLagan hits the German with his Tommy gun. 
The dying Pritchard orders his corporal to go back with the others. McLagan leaves his officer with the intention to return with help. When he arrives at the concrete hut near the bridge, after the battle, the enemy found charges had been placed on the bridge. He finds it deserted, except for the body of Lieutenant Walton. He then moves to Newman's headquarters to seek help there. While the motor launches at the old mole encounter significant difficulties in landing their commando parties of Group 1, the motor launches tasked with transporting the commando parties of Group 2 are attempting to put their men ashore at the old entrance. Motor launch 192 is the first of the Group 2 column. This motor launch carries a 14-man team under command of Captain Michael Byrne and Lieutenant Tom Payton. They are tasked to land at the old entrance, destroy the flak towers west of the northern dock caisson, and form a defensive block east in case the HMS Campbelltown would fail to ram the Normandy dock, they are tasked with destroying the guns directly to the outer caisson. During the run in the boat is hit almost immediately and severely damaged. Without any control, the ship hits the old mole and burns out. Eight of her commando party are killed, along with four of her crew. Motor launch 262 carries a demolition party under command of Lieutenant Mark Woodcock and their protection party commanded by Lieutenant Dick Morgan. Their targets are the lock gates and swing bridge G in the old entrance. During the confusion of the approach of the old entrance, the ship overshoots but returns, coming under HMS Campbelltown's stern to land her parties in the old entrance. Responding to mistakenly identified withdrawal signals, these parties are re-embarked, along with Lieutenant Smalley's team. Taking hits all the time, motor launch 262 attempts to withdraw, but comes across motor launch 457 just off the old mole. The only ship which made a successful landing on the old mole is now adrift and on fire. Motor launch 262 moves alongside the burning vessel to give assistance. Several German searchlights lock onto the stationary motor launches and both ships receive severe hits from enemy guns, destroying the small ship. The commander orders to abandon ship. There are only a few survivors. Motor launch 298 has no commandos on board and is expected to wait offshore, engages enemy defences, until it is time to evacuate the troops. During the assault, the ship passes the burning wrecks near the old mole and heads towards the Normandy dock, seeking targets of opportunity and German gun sites. Like the other ships in the assault force, they do not escape the enemy's attention. It suffers various of hits and casualties, is eventually sunk by German fire while manoeuvring off the old entrance. Motor Launch 267 carries an 11-man party under command of Regimental Sergeant Major Alan Moss. Like the motor launches in front of her, this ship also runs too far upstream. It turns back when it is abreast of the partially completed French aircraft carrier Joffre. She attacks a dredger with grenades, then came in under HMS Campbelltown's stern and attempts to put her troops ashore in the old entrance. Under heavy fire, she comes in hard with her bow to the foreshore. Some of the commandos succeed in disembarking, 
but are forced back within minutes. As the motor launch prepares to withdraw downstream, she is fatally hit and abandoned. She sinks between the old entrance and the old mole. Motor launch 268 carries a five-man demolition party under command of Captain Harry Pennington and their protection party commanded by Lieutenant Morgan Jenkins. With them is also a seven-man contingent from Regimental Sergeant Major Alan Moss party on motor launch 267. Pennington is tasked with securing the northern access to the commando operating area by destroying the Bridge M, connecting the dry dock to the Caserne de Douane. The motor launch is hit while preparing to turn into the old entrance. The ship explodes immediately, astern of the HMS Campbelltown, with heavy casualties to her crew and commando parties. Just two from a total of seventeen commandos survive the explosion. Motor Launch 156 carries the first fifteen men of Captain Dick Hooper's Special Task Party. Their primary task is to take out the suspected gun positions on the foreshore north of the Mole. They then had to silence the ships in the Normandy dock before coming into Newman's headquarters as a reserve. Within sight of the old entrance, the ship is hit and disabled, with one engine put out of action, her steering gone, and casualties mounting. Steering by tiller, she makes it out of Saint-Nazaire. The ship is scuttled later after transferring her crew and commandos to HMS Atherstone. Motor Launch 177 carries the second 15-man group of Captain Hooper's Special Task Party. This group is under command of Troop Sergeant Major George Haynes. The ship successfully maneuvers into the old entrance and lands his commandos. It then takes off many of the crew of the HMS Campbelltown, makes her way back down the river with some fifty men on board. Completed his task as planned, it almost makes it to the open sea before being hit by seventy-five mm shells from the guns on Le Pointeau. The ship sinks post-action with heavy loss of life. Lieutenant Commander Beatty, who is also aboard motor launch, 177, survives in the water, clinging to a piece of the wreckage. The Germans rescue him. Motor gunboat 314. Motor gunboat 314 lands. Lieutenant Colonel Newman, his five-man commando headquarters party, and a two-man intelligence party. After landing Newman's headquarters motor gunboat, 314 is damaged in action while taking survivors on board, she bombards the mole. During this time, the ship is hit numerous times. At some time, it becomes clear to Commander Ryder that there is no longer any chance of completing the commando evacuation plan. He also realizes that there is no hope of survival themselves if departure is delayed a moment longer. Ryder orders Lieutenant Curtis to take the gunboat downriver and make their escape to sea. Supporting craft. Motor torpedo boat 74 is kept in reserve until the moment it is clear that HMS Campbelltown reaches its objective. After that is clear, the ship is released. It turns and runs with speed through the old entrance, firing its special torpedoes against the gates. Here, they sink 
waiting for the moment when their time delay fuses activate. His job complete, Wynne returns to the rear of the HMS Campbelltown to take off more the crew and the wounded commandos. They then head for the river and the open sea. During this the journey, the ship spots two men on a Carly float drifting in mid-river. Ignoring the orders that no boat should stop to pick up survivors, the ship moves towards the men on the float. Not knowing they are right in front of the 170mm guns on Point de Lave, the ship is hit by two large shells and is set on fire. Commander Wynne orders to abandon the craft. Motor Launch 160 is instructed to attack the flak positions in the line of HMS Campbelltown's approach, then proceeds upriver in search of targets of opportunity. When returning to the area north of the Old Mole, she places herself between the burning motor launch 447 and nearby enemy positions and takes off her crew. Although damaged herself, she returns to Great Britain. Motor launch 270 supporting role in the area between the old entrance and old mole. She sustains a hit, aft, which disables her hydraulic steering and requires her crew to fit her secondary tiller, steering while under fire. She makes it downstream and is scuttled after her crew are taken on board the destroyer HMS Brocklesby. Since the HMS Campbelltown has successfully rammed the dock gates, Motor Torpedo Boat 74 fires her torpedoes at the old entrance lock gates and takes on board survivors from the HMS Campbelltown and heads for the open sea. On her way out, she stops to rescue men on a raft, is hit and destroyed with heavy loss of life. Headquarters After landing from motor gunboat 314, Lieutenant Colonel Newman immediately begins to organize his headquarters. He chooses a building located just to the south of the bridge and the bridgehead created by Captain Roy. The building chosen by Newman is by coincidence the existing German dockyard headquarters. Arriving there at the group, soon comes under fire from guns across the submarine basin. Sergeant Moss and his party are supposed to join him, but motor launch 267 that transported the party of Moss is hit, and the men go down with it. However, shortly after setting up his headquarters, Sergeant Haynes and his men who landed from motor launch 177 arrive there. Haynes' primary objective is gun emplacements on the shore between the old entrance and the old mole. They find the gun sites empty and make their way to Newman's headquarters to get fresh orders. Newman deploys the group as a protection party and waits for news of the rest of his commandos. Bit by bit news of the assault comes in, the success of the demolition parties around the Normandy dock. Lieutenant Colonel Newman realizes that their own situation is precarious when he becomes aware of the situation on the water and the destruction of many of their evacuation motor launches. The reports of Sergeant McLagan and Lieutenant Watson that the old mole is still in enemy hands and that no other commando parties have landed from the motor launches adds to his concerns. By then, the commandos assembling at Newman's headquarters is growing fast. Major Copland, with the demolition parties from around the Normandy dock, have arrived. 
Every officer from the demolition parties is injured when it becomes clear that the evacuation with the motor launches is not going to happen. Newman and Copland hold a small conference. They have two options, try to flee or surrender. Newman asks Copland, shall we call it a day? Copland replies with, certainly not, Colonel, we'll fight our way out. All the other men show the same offensive spirit as Copland when the situation is explained to them. The men are then split up into groups of about twenty. Each group is told to make its own way out of the docks, through the town and into open country, with the aim of making for Spain and on to Gibraltar. With the old town of St. Nazaire more or less blocked the groups, double back towards Roy's Bridge, and then move through the rows of sheds to the side of the submarine basin. This brings them under observation from German guns across the basin, which causes more casualties to the fire from these guns. Most of the wounded drop out of the group's march and take shelter or hide themselves, knowing they never make it to Spain injured. A reasonable number of commandos make it to the southern basin. Ahead of them, 50 meters to their right, is the lifting bridge and the exit from the dockyard. To make to the other side, they have to cross the bridge-exposed roadway. However, on the bridge and on the other side of the lock, Germans are waiting for them. For a moment, the commandos halt to prepare for the dash across. Sergeant Haynes sets up a Bren gun to cover the initial stages of the charge. Then, Newman gives the signal, Away you go, lads. Firing their weapons from their hips, the commandos dash across the open ground, straight for the enemy, surprising them with the fierceness of the attack. The Germans on the bridge scramble and flee. The Germans on the far side are more prepared, and they begin firing on them. The fire makes some casualties among the British, but the majority presses on without hesitation. Some forty or fifty commandos reach the end of the bridge, firing their weapons into the German defenders now at very close range. In seconds, they charge through the cordon and quickly disappear into the back streets of the town. From here on, the groups begin to lose their coherence with each other as each man sought his own way out. Things are quite different in the town. German reinforcements have arrived, and troops from 679th Infantry Regiment, 333rd Division, begin to get a grip of Saint-Nazaire. Throughout the night, straggling parties of men are trapped by roadblocks and patrols. One by one, the commandos are captured or shot, trying to make a bid for freedom. Estimations are that 75% of all the commandos making the break from headquarters are wounded, as for Lieutenant Colonel Newman and about fifteen other commandos. They are forced to shelter in a cellar to wait for nightfall, where they are soon discovered and taken prisoner. Almost every other commando who made it over the bridge follows their fate. With the coming of daylight, most of them were captured, and the raid is truly over. Way Home, March 28th 1942. V-04-30, motor gunboat 314, motor launch 270, motor launch 446, and motor launch 156 return to the rendezvous area and HMS Atherstone and HMS Tyndale.
They transfer their casualties to the HMS Atherstone. Due to their heavy damage motor gunboat 314 and motor launch 446, are scuttled. Not expecting any more boats to arrive, the convoy heads for home. 644. The HMS Cleveland and HMS Brocklesby reach a position approximately 120 miles west-southwest of Saint-Nazaire when they intercept a signal reporting that HMS Tyndale and HMS Atherstone are engaging enemy torpedo boats. They immediately increase to full speed, steering for the given position, then some 80 miles ahead. After half an hour, a large trawler is sighted to port. As she flew no colours and alters her course away to the northeast at increased speed upon their approach, she is assumed to be an enemy lookout vessel. Seven or eight salvos were fired at her at a range of 4,000 yards, leaving her damaged and stopped. Nine o'clock, Hunt-class destroyers HMS Brocklesby and HMS Cleveland join the return convoy for extra protection. A few hours later, Motor Launch 160, Motor Launch 307, and Motor Launch 443 also reach the rendezvous area. They wait until 10 o'clock and head home without the protection of the destroyers where they arrive the next day. 12 o'clock. The explosive charges in HMS Campbelltown detonate, destroying the dry dock. Forty senior German officers and civilians who are on the HMS Campbelltown are killed. March 30, 1942. 15.20 The torpedoes from motor torpedo boat 74 explode at the old entrance into the basin. Anxious German guards, mistake workers of Organisation Todd for Commandos, open fire and kill some of them. Losses the Germans reported the following damage as a result of Operation Chariot. 1. Normandy Dock The outer gate was completely destroyed. The inner gate, although damaged by explosive charges, managed to prevent water from flooding the dock. The pumping station and the caisson operating machinery were completely destroyed. 2. East Lock the outer gate was completely destroyed by an explosion around 1520 on March 30th. The inner gate withstood the rush of water, despite having been damaged in an air raid a few days earlier. 3. Ships The tankers Schledstadt and Passat, which were in the Normandy dock at the time of the explosion, sustained slight damage, broke loose from their moorings, and collided. The Tug's Champion and Pornick were sunk by British troops in the Saint-Nazaire Basin alongside the inner gate of the South Lock. A harbour defence vessel lying near the East Lock in the Saint-Nazaire Basin was scuttled by her commanding officer to prevent it from falling into British hands. 4. Wharf Installations The workshops opposite the Normandy Dock, Forge de l'Ouest, were burned down after fires had been started by either gunfire or explosive charges. The efficiency of the installations was impaired for a long time afterwards. However, the raid resulted in heavy casualties among the British commandos and the Royal Navy personnel. If a commando reached the shores of Saint-Nazaire, 
they were most likely either killed in action or captured. The Royal Navy suffered even greater losses proportionally, as their numbers were double that of the soldiers during the raid. 169 men are killed, 105 Royal Navy and 64 commandos, and another 215 become prisoners of war, 106 Royal Navy and 109 commandos. Many of them are wounded. They also lose motor gun boat 314, motor torpedo boat 74, 14 out of the 18 motor launches. One Armstrong Whitworth Whitley and one Bristol Boo fighter. The HMS Campbelltown was a calculated loss. Only 228 men make it back England by boat. Corporals Wheeler, Douglas, Howard and Sims, as well as Private Harding escape through neutral Spain and Gibraltar. All five of them rejoin their units and see further action. In total, the mission saw 611 commandos and sailors engaged, and a staggering 403 of them did not return, showcasing the high price paid during this daring operation. The raid on Saint-Nazaire remains one of the most audacious and costly raids of World War II, demonstrating the courage and sacrifice of those involved in such perilous wartime operations. Five men participating in the raid are awarded a Victoria Cross, able seaman William Alfred Savage, Sergeant Thomas Frank Durrant, Commander Robert Edward Dudley Ryder, Lieutenant Commander Stephen Holden Beatty, and to Lieutenant Colonel Augustus Charles Newman. In addition, four Distinguished Service Orders, 17 Distinguished Service Crosses, 11 Military Crosses, four Conspicuous Gallantry Medals, five Distinguished Conduct Medals, 24 Distinguished Service Medals, and 15 Military Medals are awarded. 51 men are mentioned in dispatches. The Germans lose somewhere between the 360 and 400 killed men. It is unsure how many wounded the Germans suffered. They also lose two Junkers, 88, two Tankers and two Tugs, and most importantly, the Normandy Dock and its operating systems. I want to thank our listeners for joining us on this remarkable journey through history. As we sign off from this series on Operation Chariot, let us remember the lessons of courage, teamwork and resilience that this raid has taught us, lessons that continue to resonate even today. This has been the Special Forces in World War II podcast. It's been an honor to share this incredible story with you. Until next time, keep exploring history and remember the bravery of those who came before us. Operation Chariot, the greatest raid of all, will forever be remembered as a pivotal moment in World War II a shining example of strategic prowess and heroism in the face of adversity. Thank you for tuning in to the Special Forces in World War II podcast. Join us next time as we delve into another fascinating chapter of military history. concludes this mission briefing fellow warriors of knowledge we've navigated through the trenches of information delving deep into the battlefields of history 
As we wrap up this episode in our campaign for understanding, remember that knowledge is your most potent weapon. Stay vigilant and keep sharpening your intellectual arsenal. We'll rendezvous again for another episode, continuing our relentless pursuit of enlightenment. Until then, keep your mind sharp, your curiosity burning, and your determination unwavering. Simultaneously, you are hereby alerted to our outposts on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, fortifying our information dissemination. Should you possess any pertinent intelligence to bolster our mission, transmit your findings with no hesitation. Your contributions shall be prominently acknowledged within the operational archives. Furthermore, for those prepared to provide substantial reinforcement, navigate to our Patreon forward base and enlist. Your support is integral to sustaining our forward thrust. Carry forth the legacy. Dismissed. <laughs>